This text from the Gospel of John is part of a much longer prayer uttered by Jesus in the most dire of circumstances. He's about to be arrested, he's about to be crucified, and he knows it. This prayer, in a sense, serves as Jesus' last will and testament, his wish for what comes next after he's gone. And he asks for God to protect his followers from the evils of this world. That said, he makes a point of distinguishing this world, cosmos in the original Greek, which can mean anything from the created universe uh, to our laws and customs. He makes a point of distinguishing this world from the one that he, and by extension we, his followers, really belong to. In John's Gospel, Jesus is firmly rooted in this other world, so much so that he barely seems to walk on this earth at all, much as he gently steps over the waves when he walks on water. You might say that John's Jesus uh, abides on earth, wandering Palestine and Israel, and yet he's also a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Of course, citizenship is complicated, and dual citizenship, doubly so. <laughs> but now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I am asking you to take them out of the, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ which sometimes feel impossible to follow, but we take comfort in his words that what is impossible for us is possible for God. Amen. It was a sweltering day in the summer of 1954 when a businessman stepped into the arrivals terminal of the Haneda Airport in Tokyo. His name, according to his passport, was John Allen Zegras, and he appeared to be well-traveled. His passport was stamped with official seals from far-flung countries like Czechoslovakia, Vietnam, Germany, and Brazil. But originally, he told the customs officer, he was from Tored. The trouble, of course, is that Tored doesn't exist. Upon being told this, the man grew understandably agitated. What do you mean it doesn't exist? That's where I grew up. He insisted on seeing a map, which the folks at the airport managed to produce, and he pointed to where Tored should be, 
indicating a small region between France and Spain uh, that is currently known as Andorra. But of course, Tered cannot be found on any map in this world. Unsure of how to handle the situation and unable to determine the legitimacy of this man's passport, the authorities in Tokyo decided to detain Zegris, putting him up in a nearby hotel under armed guard until the matter could be properly investigated. And yet, and yet, when the officials arrived the next morning to question him, he was gone. His room was on one of the upper floors with no balcony or other means of escape, and the guards hadn't seen anything unusual. The man from Tored, as he came to be known, simply vanished into thin air, never to be seen again. Well, that's how the story goes, anyway. These myths are usually rooted in a kernel of truth, and this one is no different. The actual incident took place five years later, in 1959, and Zegris didn't mysteriously disappear. He was arrested three months later for fraud after attempting to cash illegitimate checks and sentenced to one year in a Japanese prison. He'd also arrived in Japan with a Korean woman that he claimed was his wife, who was deported upon his arrest. While he obviously did not hail from Tored, which doesn't exist, I suppose you could say that John Allen Zegris not his real name, surely, was a man without a country. He drifted from one place to another, writing bad checks and staying a step ahead of the local authorities. Conspiracy theorists and purveyors of urban legends like to believe that this story offers proof of a multiverse where parallel worlds exist, that one of them is home to a quaint city named Tered, tucked away amidst the beauty of the Pyrenees Mountains. They want to believe that this man, a citizen of another world, had accidentally crossed over to ours before slipping back into the dimension from whence he came. But in reality, we are all citizens of this world. And for better or worse, we are all subject to its laws, its nations, its borders. I have to say that I'm always a little amused with the so-called sovereign citizen movement. The FBI describes these folks as anti-government extremists who, while they live in the US, assert that they are sovereign citizens and therefore not subject to the laws or taxes of the land, that they are, in essence, a nation unto themselves. The funny thing about this, of course, is that there's no such thing as a sovereign citizen, but these guys still try to use it as some kind of legal defense every time they get pulled over for speeding. Oh, you see, officer, you can't give me a ticket because I'm a sovereign citizen. They're like kids at the playground who make up random superpowers every time they're about to lose whatever imaginary battle they're fighting. Oh, yeah, well, you can't hurt me with that fireball because I'm invisible. These kids always mix up invisible and invincible but they're all a lot smarter than anyone who tries to tell the cops that they're a sovereign citizen. I have to admit, I almost admire the sheer audacity of it, but as you'd expect, this never ends well for them. Just last month, a guy in Texas tried to pull this stunt after leading police on a high-speed chase across Donnelly County. 
He got 10 years in prison. You can pretend that the rules don't apply to you, but it's a lot harder to play make-believe in a jail cell. Somehow I don't think this is what Jesus meant when he said in so many words that we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. So long as you're in the world, you're still subject to its laws, its realities. In fact, Jesus was pretty clear about that. Yes, he sometimes broke the laws of Moses, redefining theology, and Jesus broke a few laws of physics, too, but I don't think he ever broke the laws of Rome, and he even paid his taxes. Render unto Caesar and unto God what is God's and all that. Unlike so-called sovereign citizens, we can't simply ignore the laws of the land no more than we are immune to the laws of gravity, the scourge of illness, the pangs of hunger, the inevitability of death and taxes, or the brutality of war. So long as we are citizens of this world, we are all subject to these realities. But as Christians, we also hold dual citizenship, as it were, in the kingdom of God. Citizenship is, in a sense, at the very heart of the horror that erupted this week in Israel and Gaza. Despite being called the Holy Land, this region has long been stained by terrible violence. It has traded hands countless times None of them peaceful, to my knowledge. Canaanites, Israelites, Assyrians, Babylonians, Romans, Greeks, Ottomans, Christian Europeans, Palestinian Arabs, and most recently, the modern state of Israel have all laid claim to these 262 miles, give or take, that stretches from Egypt to Lebanon. The question of who gets to be a citizen of this land has endured for thousands of years, complicated by clashing religious traditions and geopolitical violence. It is home to Muslims, Jews, and Christians who exist in an uneasy peace, or did until this week. I want to preface everything that I say next with a caveat of relative ignorance. This is an extraordinarily complicated religious and political environment that most Westerners only have a passing knowledge of, even as some are determined to take sides and have already decided that this is the hill that they're going to die on. I've learned a lot myself just this past week as I've tried to untangle the threads, but like all of us, I'm still struggling to understand. Now, as it stands, the nation of Israel is the dominant force in these parts and has been since the end of World War II, and the international community gifted it to them as a kind of amends for the horrors that the Jews suffered in the Holocaust, a place of their own. The only place, as a Jewish man I very much admire once reminded me, the only place that is free from the persecution and anti-Semitism that has plagued these people for centuries. Unfortunately, as I think we all know, there are already other people living there. Palestinian Arabs who are relocated to the Gaza Strip and the West Bank primarily. 
where they eke out an existence. For years, the UN and various humanitarian organizations have called Gaza the world's largest open-air prison, a city of checkpoints and closely guarded borders with little freedom or opportunity, a crucible, some would say, for radicalization and extremism. Now, does any of that, does any of it give Hamas, the anti-Semitic Islamic ruling party in Gaza, the right to launch this brutal attack on Israeli citizens, to rain down bullets on folks engaged in festivity, to invade their homes in the kibbutz and massacre families, children, to take civilians hostages. Does anything justify this violence? Unequivocally, no, it does not. As Christians, we recognize that Jesus did not organize a violent uprising against Rome, nor did he condone the terrorism of first century Jewish zealots who sought to drive the Romans out. Jesus never condoned any kind of violence at all, not even in his own defense in the Garden of Gethsemane. He who lives by the sword, Jesus warns Peter after the disciple cut off a man's ear dies by the sword. And so we must be unequivocal in our condemnation of Hamas terror and brutality. And yet we also have to recognize that Hamas does not represent all of Gaza where folks have to live under this militant regime and have no place to go. Violence always breeds violence. And Israel's indiscriminate retaliation in Gaza where they have cut off fuel, electricity, water, and food from a population that already lives close to subsistence has also drawn criticism. They are leveling neighborhood after neighborhood where children try to stay invisible, cowering beneath the rubble, but sadly, they are not invincible. Over 500 children have already perished in Gaza in addition to those killed in Israel. The so-called two-state solution, where Israeli Jews and Palestinian Muslims live side by side in harmony, has never felt further away. Our own government, while unequivocally supporting Israel, has also encouraged them to abide by international law. According to the Human Rights Watch, I quote, Hamas' deliberate targeting of civilians, indiscriminate attacks, and taking of civilians as hostages amounts to war crimes under international humanitarian law, one spokesperson said. Israeli authorities cutting off electricity to Gaza and other punitive measures against Gaza's civilian population would amount to unlawful collective punishment, which is a war crime. The laws of war apply to all parties to a conflict, irrespective of the lawlessness of their going to war or imbalances of power between the parties. Friends, as citizens of this world, we are all beholden to its laws. And that includes the rules of engagement set forth in the Geneva Convention, though I fear those are falling by the wayside in the emerging world order. As citizens of the kingdom of God, as Christians are, we are also beholden to another set of values embodied in Jesus. As Christians, as citizens of God's kingdom, we must pray 
and advocate for de-escalation and peace. We must pray and act in whatever way we can to break the cycles of violence that threaten to spin this world right off of its axis. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That was the hill that he died on. In this text from John's Gospel, Jesus prays for his disciples' well-being in the wake of his imminent death. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, Jesus specifically says, but I ask you to protect them. They do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. Now this is where the oft-repeated phrase, in the world but not of the world, comes from. Jesus never uses those exact words specifically, but the same sentiment is there. Namely, that his followers continue to walk this earth, but their hearts are in God's kingdom. And that means that they, we, are citizens of two worlds. While we are subject to suffering, violence, and death, we also live in hope, love, and peace. The Christian does not hope for a perfect world free of pain and suffering. Jesus never promised us that. On the contrary, he promises persecution and danger. You will be hated by all because of my name, he tells his disciples. And in his more apocalyptic teachings, Jesus even envisions a collapse of society born out in the fall of the Roman Empire that would come later, and all empires given enough time. Those in Judea must flee to the mountains, Jesus says. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter to take anything from the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it might not be in winter. For in those days there will be suffering such as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. As Christians, we are people of compassion. When other people suffer, we care. We carry that weight. We grieve as God grieves. But in the midst of such terror, for those who believe, there is always a spark of light, of love, of hope. Christian hope never diminishes the horror of this world. It is rather the hope that we can navigate it with grace and love and integrity, hope that God will never forsake us, hope in a resurrection of some kind that we cannot imagine and may never see, just as the old men who plant trees. And in that, friends, there is joy, real joy. A great saint of this church, Susie Temple, who I will always adore and love dearly, once told me that my sermons are too depressing. <laughs> I can't imagine why. No one ever talks about how joyful it is to be a Christian, she said. To be fair, Susie didn't always seem entirely joyful herself, <laughs> especially not when someone tried to serve cake from the Jewel Osco during coffee hour instead of something homemade, but she really was joyful. There was a deep and profound joy in her that blossomed from the deep roots of her faith. And the last time I saw her before she died, she was positively radiant. 
She knew that death was not the last word. She knew that she was awaited in her true home. She knew that she was a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And as a citizen of earth, she believed that a better world is possible. Friends, as Christians, we are all citizens of two worlds, bound by the laws of each, in the world, but not of the world. While this world thirsts for vengeance, we pray for peace. When this world cries out for retaliation, we cry out for redemption. For it does not matter, really, what religion we choose to subscribe to or what nation we live in or what our passport says. We are all children of God. Amen.